Will more teams follow the Rays' blueprint for pitcher usage? And how much should fantasy owners invest in pitchers in our auctions? Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. I have That's not had the three go-throughs yet. It works great in a fantasy. Three. I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Friday, May 22nd. I'm Al Melchior, and I am here with Derek Van Riper and DVR. We've got some raised news and I think some analysis that we can do uh, to spin off from that news. We'll talk about hitter-pitcher splits and auctions. But uh, very exciting announcement made by uh, the folks at PitcherList. So I, I, I'm going to take the liberty and say we're free to talk about it now. You and I are both, both participants in PitchCon. That is coming up May 28th through the 31st. So uh, as we're recording this, uh, basically a week from now. Um, so uh, very cool. Uh, DVR, you're giving a solo presentation, right? Yeah, a solo presentation. I believe my slot is 5 o'clock on Friday next week. So that would be the 29th would be the day of my presentation. I've got the very last slot. Nice. And uh, yeah, uh, Nick told me last one before uh, closing ceremonies, and, and I just told him that uh, Alex Fast better be playing some bass during those closing ceremonies. <laughs> I, you know, I will definitely stick around for that, and I think everybody should. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, the Pitcher List crew does great work, and this will just be uh, kind of a nice way to maybe kick off the start of draft season 2.0, really. I, I think we may get a little bit more news as far as some progress between the owners and the players toward working out some details for how a 2020 season might actually work between now and then. Yeah, now it could be uh, fantastic timing, but you know, regardless of what happens uh, on the news front in the next week, uh, it's, it's going to be a really cool thing. I mean, pretty much everybody that you uh, follow in fantasy baseball is there. panel presentations, solo presentations, like the ones that we are doing, um, a lot of people from the athletic involved, so uh, going to be a great thing. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that more in the coming week. And um, it's funded by attendee contributions, and 50% of the proceeds go to charity. So just one more reason to uh, to take part. So check that out uh, on the Pitcher List site or on their, their Twitter feed. Um, there's a lot of uh, information there. But let's get to the news DVR. Um, Brent Honeywell underwent a decompression procedure on his right ulnar ner- nerve on Wednesday. And that's, I'm taking that pretty much verbatim from the um, Twitter account of Juan Toribio of uh, MLB.com. That's uh, who initially reported this news. So I don't, you know, I had never heard of a decompression procedure uh, before, but apparently some scar tissue was removed in the process. I have not seen anything about a timetable. I don't think there's that much here that impacts the value of Brent Honeywell in fantasy because I think he's pretty well buried on the raised depth chart, uh, a very deep uh, depth chart for starting pitching. But I did uh, do a little bit of searching to see what news I could find about the Rays' plans for their rotation. And just a few days ago, there was a piece in the Tampa Bay Times from John Romano, and he was saying that the Rays probably will, will they'll use the status quo, which is they'll have openers, they'll have um, starters probably not going that deep, and they'll have a lot of long relief stints. Uh, but he thinks that other teams will basically copy that blueprint 
uh, because with the the accelerated spring training that that's been planned, uh, teams would be very likely to pull their starters early. Uh, you know, maybe for the first 30, 40 games of the season. So, um, who do you think gets impacted? If assuming that that does happen, and it makes sense that that does happen, like, uh, do you think that somebody like a Zach Greinke loses value because so much of his value now uh, in this part of his career comes more from going deep into games than you know racking up a bunch of strikeouts? Yeah, I think it would be players who are accumulators, and Grinky fits that description. Really, to be more precise, I guess I'm talking about anybody who works a lot of innings with good ratios, but does that with a lower than expected or lower than average strikeout rate. Grinky usually can make up for that over a full season because he comes in at the higher end of the scale and workload. If you start taking away that advantage from a pitcher, that does bring down the ceiling a little bit. Uh, I think the other question, though, with with anybody is, is there going to be a difference between Grinky as a veteran, kind of former ace, and let's say, you know, the young starters, uh, the Jesus Lazardo, Julio Urias types are kind of the first guys that come to mind for this group. Is there going to be an in-game difference in how someone like Grinky is managed compared to those other young starters. And I think guys who struggle the third time through the batting order have already put themselves in a position to be removed from games earlier. With the Rays setting a blueprint, with teams like the Brewers kind of doing this uh, in recent years as well, going to the pan a bit earlier, I would expect that any team with even decent bullpen depth and six, seventh, eighth starters who can come out and maybe work two or three innings behind some of the starters who only go four and change, they're going to take advantage of that depth because that gives them the best chance to win. There are likely going to be more playoff spots in 2020. So that just changes the complexion of how many teams are trying in the first place. And that revenue might be really important for a lot of teams. So there's the extra incentive to just you know kind of push all chips in and, and actually try to manage optimally. So it's a lot to unpack, and I think the Rays are really the prototype. I think they're a great example of a team that has done this effectively, even with a normal number of roster spots. So I would expect them to really go full throttle with the opportunity to have everybody, the Trevor Richards, Jalen Beeks types, up on the roster the entire time. Yeah, and you know, I, I again, I don't think there's going to be a big difference, and I hear this in, in what you're saying too, a big difference in terms of how the Rays are going to deal with things compared to a normal season, but on Thursday's show, Michael Beller and I talked about the Blue Jays, and there had been a piece. It was uh, Gregor Chisholm. It took me a second to remember who wrote it uh, uh, in the Toronto Star, uh, saying that he thinks that because of the very calculus that you were just describing in terms of teams kind of on the bubble of, of contention really going all in, that for that reason, maybe we see Nate Pearson for the entire 82-game season, assuming that's what it is, uh, for that entirety in the Blue Jays rotation. So that's obviously a big boost to his value. I'm sure we could find analogs uh, to uh, other teams that are kind of on the bubble like that. <laughs> I have to say, I don't really consider the Blue Jays quite that close to contention. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I uh, wouldn't necessarily have come up with that example on my own, but I think we could probably think of pitchers that would, would fit that description. But I want to get back to what you were saying, because the way I was thinking about this is that somebody like Robbie Ray, who's really inefficient, who has uh, struggled pretty consistently against uh, batting orders the third time around, Jake Odorizzi, uh, Luke Weaver, those pitchers 
might have their value sort of equalized or neutralized with the innings eaters because maybe everybody gets pulled after five. But what I what I thought I, I heard you saying, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that while Zach Greinke maybe only goes you know five and change instead of six and change or seven, a Robbie Ray might only go four innings. <laughs> so that in a, in a sense, it would even compound the the loss of value that a pitcher like him would have in a normal season. Right. So th- there's a a slight ding for someone who uses plus plus workload to boost up the volume of strikeouts like Grinky, but he doesn't lose quite as much as you'd think because within any individual start, I just I don't see him as a guy who's going to get pulled because of how he navigates the lineup deeper into his starts relative to guys who do strike out more batters but may have that sort of issue because they don't sequence as well or they don't command all their pitches as well as he does. So it's a, it's very complex. It is like more player-specific than anything else because I think the other example that you were putting out there was Mike Miner. You know, Mike Miner versus Zach Greinke, the trust level could be a little bit different there. You know, you could look at what Miner's done the last couple of seasons in Texas and compared to what Greinke's done over his entire career, do you have confidence that Mike Miner will consistently get through the lineup a third time like is that a skill you truly believe he owns at this point i think it's more of an open question for someone like him than it is for someone like grinky that makes a lot of sense i mean i imagine myself drafting that i'd be loath to really discount grinky that much but yeah i would it would certainly give me second thoughts about drafting Mike Miner as I would normally draft him knowing that the Rangers could come in. And I mean, Miner's a great example because I don't think the Rangers have a very good or deep bullpen, but they still could come in with, um, I don't know, like a Joe Palumbo and, and ha- you know, have him in a middle innings role or something like that. So uh, I certainly would treat them treat them differently for sure. Uh, I also want to go back to a topic uh, that we broached about a week ago, DVR, and that is the retro drafts that you and I are participating in. Last week, we did a 1999 retro draft. Um, the the group that's organizing that, uh, which includes Ron Chandler and Todd Zola, uh, they did another 99 retro draft this week um, to get, you know, get as many people involved with that as possible. And then after that second one, Todd Zola circulated some data that I just thought was really interesting. So I, I kind of wanted to get back to that and talk about it because we talked about some lessons that we learned from the retro draft, but we, we, uh, you know, I in particular did not do nearly as well as I hoped I would have. Um, but we both talked about things that we thought we could have done better. Well, I think I have a much clearer picture now on why I finished 11th out of 12 and Todd circulated a table with, um, basically the the estimated value of all the players that we drafted um and he did it with um values generated by a, a, a presumed 69-31 hitter pitcher split and then he did it again with an even 50-50 split which it never even occurred to me that when we're doing retro drafts, we should be assuming a 50-50 split because so much of that shift towards hitters is because of the unpredictability of pitchers and doing a retro draft as far as I can tell, there's no risk in the pitchers generating the uh, the stats they actually put up. I don't think they're going to get retroactively injured or anything. Nope. Those uh, outlier <laughs> seasons that happened, um, they don't change. So you're not taking out any risk at all. So, yeah, it's one of those unique challenges of drafting those old drafts that you could kind of walk into the trap of valuing players the way that you do in the current era and 
building your values around how you play, looking forward. And it certainly, it's just been such a fun exercise going through that three times already. I think we're doing another one next week or two weeks from now. So I'm really excited for that. And I mentioned it, I think, last week. I, I don't usually make my own projections because I believe there are software and, and tools out there that do such a good job of it. There's there's no reason for me to also make the sausage if there's good sausage that I could just go pick up and, and just you know put on the grill myself, right? That's that's an easier way to to go about it. So uh, it's been a good test for me that way, and I, I certainly hadn't thought that much about changing the split within the formula for how the the this, the money should be allocated value wise. But I also think your values need to be flexible based on the path you're trying to take to win. So my numbers, like the actual value that I accrued looking at Todd's results, were pretty low relative to where I was in the standings because I punted batting average, which it turned out in hindsight was a bad category to punt because everybody hit for a high average in that era. Just about everybody did. So values were probably juiced because of high batting averages. And I was just giving those points away. I was giving... Uh, that value away, if you will. And because I've maxed out other categories, I ended up moving up more in the standings than I should have based on pure value. But anyway, long way of saying, um, you know, you could still figure some different things out, kind of looking at the numbers from different angles like that. Yeah. And, and I want to come back to that aspect of draft strategy, because th- that's another area where I, I uh, goofed up in a way that I, I wasn't aware of until I, I looked at these uh, rankings and also followed a thread on um, uh, Patton and Co's site. Um, so you should definitely seek that out uh, on uh, PattonandCo.com. But um, getting back to, so I, I'll get back to that aspect of it. I just want to circle back to the 50 50 split for a retro draft because if, if we were allocating um, dollars, hitters to pitchers in a more normal like 69-31 split, I actually would have finished in sixth place based on the projected values. Now, again, that's kind of a faulty assumption because like you say, if you're punting categories, you, you know, you may wind up having a lower value than you know what how you would actually finish. But point being that I I did much better <laughs> in this auction with a, uh, a traditional split than uh, than with the 50-50 split. So that you know that not something that you can really apply to upcoming auctions, but I think it does raise the question of what split is the right split for 2020. Um, you know, is, is there's going to be more variability, but is that going to be more uh, stronger? Is that going to be stronger in favor of pitchers? Do, do we go more than 70 30 for hitters? Do, you know, any thoughts on that? It's actually something that I need to explore more uh, to be completely candid until you put this on the outline for today. I hadn't thought about adjusting, but it's absolutely worth exploring and considering. So uh, I'm going to spin it and say it's a rhetorical question. And it's one where <laughs> if anyone listening out there has put thought into this and has a good game plan for attacking it, it I'm interested in hearing it. You know, tweet at me as I'm at Derek Van yeah, Riper. I, I, and tweet it out too at Al Melchior BB. Right. And, and so I talked over at Derek Van Riper uh, also. So um, yeah, no, I certainly don't have the answer to it. And I didn't think about it until I looked at uh, the the thread on uh, Patton and Company and, and, and uh, Tom's, or I'm sorry, uh, Todd Zola's emails. So uh, yeah, I'm still working this out myself. But getting back to what you were talking about in terms of punting categories and all that, another thing I realized is that I didn't 
really have any place to move up in terms of pitcher categories. And yet my last pick, and I have to go back and look and see if it was more than just the last one pick, if maybe it was last two or three picks, but my last pick was a pitcher. And maybe I should have mapped that out better and looked, you know, two or three rounds ahead before the end game and looked at where I had more room to move up and maybe, you know, maybe uh, save those for the end. I don't know. Uh, but that's the, again, another strategical twist that I, I had never considered before this. Yeah, for sure. And I also think is you look at results from something like that, you kind of sit back and at first you say, what? That's easy. Like I, I can, I could draft the best team knowing all the results ahead of time. And I think you're, you're kind of noticing as new people come into the fold for these leagues, they're a little bit humbled by the, the different ways you can make a mistake. Or fail to adjust enough to the path that you're on, which uh, you know kind of hinges on what happens with the picks around you. You just you don't know the exact order and the exact mindset of everybody else in the room, and being able to react really quickly is difficult. It's actually very difficult, more difficult than I would have thought. Yeah, same here, no doubt. So yeah, you and I are both going to get a chance to uh, maybe fix uh, the mistakes that we found in the first one. We're doing a 1986 retro draft uh, next week. Uh, well, DVR, I don't know if you're in that one or maybe the following one, um, but I'll be in that one next week. So I'll have a chance to try to do better on some of these things and we can, you know, circle back and talk about it then. Uh, but, you know, speaking of making mistakes, you know what Major League team made a lot of mistakes was the 2010 Orioles. Not a good team. <laughs> and uh, they were covered by the athletics Brittany Giroli back when she worked for MLB.com and was the Orioles beat writer for them. And so she's revisiting that experience. And she wrote just a fantastic piece, really enjoyable, uh, called What the F Do You Want Me to Say? Inside the Beat 2010 Orioles. Uh, this is by Brittany Giroli. And you can read it. And you, you know, first of all, can find out who that quote is from because I was curious. Uh, but a lot of interesting kind of backstories about that particular team, the challenges as a um, first first year full time beat writer covering a team that was very bad. It's just a great piece, so uh, check that out on the uh, in the Athletic. And uh, that's going to be all for this episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15. But if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic and athletic, and you want to read great stuff like uh, this piece by Brittany Giroli, a couple of ways you can do it. You can check it out through a 90-day free, uh, tri- free trial or get a 40% discount off a subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball in 15. And everything in The Athletic, not just MLB, not just fantasy, everything is a part of your subscription. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to leave a rating and a review, we, as always, greatly appreciate it when you take the time to do that. For Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melchior. We'll be back with you on Monday. Monday.